Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Excuse me, Lady Wolf. Yes, what is it, Walter? There's a woman here to see you in the ante room. Oh, there must be some mistake. My auntie is dead. I'm quite sure Madame is correct, but this woman is here to talk about a prior relationship with you. What's what's her name? Attila Dezim. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Denzel Mirsham. I don't recall such a person. What about Betty Jo Bialowski? Everyone knew her as Nancy. What does she want? She is writing a memoir and wishes to discuss the summer you spent cycling together along the Amalfi Coast. Send her away. Tell her, uh, tell her I died in a blimp crash. A blimp crashed into a, a pterodactyl. Yes, that should be satisfactory. You must speak with her. No, no, I cannot. Madame, would it be so terrible if the world found out that your body? Bias... Ay, 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 stop talking, stop talking. Lady Wolf, I have served you now for 22 years, and I must insist that you are the person most injured by concealing from the world that you're by... Finger in ears. Not listening, Walter. Not listening. No. We have to confront this. Your bicycle prowess is a myth. You rode for one mile and said your bottom hurt and never got back on. Is that what she wants to talk about? My bicycle prowess? I believe so. Madame. <sighs> send her in. Send her in. I was so worried that she wanted to ask me about my bison herd, the one I sold to unscrupulous ranchers in Montana. And now a man who has for 25 years hidden the nature of his relationship with Rob Lowe from everyone, especially Rob Lowe, Colin McEnroe. I don't know if it's a good sign or a bad sign. Brian Murray, one of the greatest English-speaking actors in the world, has been laughing and holding his head during that entire time. Uh, I think it's a good sign. So um, this, before I even introduce our panel, uh, and it's a very exciting panel, um, let me just say this is a, a conversation is occasioned to a certain degree by um, A Song of Twilight, which also occasioned what you just heard, uh, although A Song of Twilight, a play written by Noel Coward in 1966, uh, takes a very different turn. Uh, but it's, it, is the play, uh, it is a play about a man um, probably modeled quite a bit on Somerset Mom, who, uh, whose rigid concealment of his own sexual orientation has exacted a huge price on him and on everybody around him, on everybody whose life he has touched. Uh, and it, it seemed with that show in Hartford that, I mean, watching it, you do feel like you are taking a trip back in time because you are. But then you sort of think, well, how far back in time and how completely far back in time is this? How different are things in 2014? Uh, are they completely different? Are, they, are there similarities? I mean, on the one hand, it does feel like the world has, has, has turned around on this. On the other hand, uh, the Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade has made it clear that gay people can march in the parade as long as they, as long as they don't say they're gay, uh, which seems like we're back at a song in Twilight. So um, let me tell you who's here. Brian Murray is here. He's a three-time Tony-nominated actor, currently starring in A Song at Twilight at Hartford Stage, which is playing until March 16th. Pedro Segarra is here. He is the mayor of Hartford. Erwin uh, Krieger is here, a clinical social worker in New Haven, working extensively with the LGBT community uh, and the author of Helping Your Transgendered Teen, 
a guide for parents. Robin McHalen is here. She's the executive director of True Colors, a nonprofit organization in Hartford providing support, education, and advocacy for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth, adults, and families. Um, we also hope that you will join in this conversation when uh, you see an opening, when you see uh, when you hear something that uh, you want to respond to or comment on or ask a question about, the number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Brian Murray, since uh, you're our, our uh, honored guest here in Hartford uh, for a few weeks, uh, I'd like to begin right. with you. Um, and I'd like to talk a little bit about the resonances that this play has for you. Um, you're a man of a certain age, as we say. So uh. you've seen some of these revolutions. You were alive in Britain when it was a criminal offense. Absolutely. Yeah. And that has affected my thinking about this particular subject in every way. I mean, it was uh, at that time that people were actually put in jail as, as when I was in my teens. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a very strong and still remains a very strong power. And when I, in the play, I... I I'm, able to remind people that, uh, that it, it, the play is written in 1966. The law in England wasn't changed until 1967. And I'm able to say, you know, it is still a penal offense, which it was. And it's enough, and it was enough for me to, to, to make one very frightened indeed. Quite apart from all the social things, quite apart from the professional things, just the criminal thing was bad enough. And, and my understanding is that uh, although it did change uh, in England and Scotland in uh, in sixty seven, uh, Northern Ireland's and I know excuse me England and Wales, um, Northern Ireland and Scotland it was much longer. I think it was the early nineteen eighties. Yes, it uh, was. Yes, of course. And, it was. and in in the Irish pub, Irish Republic, uh, quite a bit later than that, sometime in the nineteen nineties, that it was decriminalized. Absolutely. And so, I mean, how, how real, I mean, as you moved into the, and obviously you're obviously an actor, you move around, you don't stay in one place all the time. Mm-hmm. So you go to, to Northern Ireland, you go to, to Belfast, you go to Wales, you go to Dublin. Um, how much on your mind was that kind of thing? All right. Well, it was, I mean, I was an actor from the time I was eight. Mm-hmm. So that's 70 years ago, nearly. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I, my life evolved around the, the changing mores of the time that I grew up in. And uh, it seemed to fit very nicely certain things. I was doing plays like Tea and Sympathy and uh, Cat and Hot Tin Roof and things when I was in my teens. And that was, that was all a part of that growing up process. But uh, I... Uh, I think because of the the nature of the theatre. I mean, I, I, you know, the theatre is a very liberal place, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have any particular prejudices or uh, angers or angst. So I was able to grow up mm-hmm. in the theatre, and it, it supported me and a lot of my friends in whatever we wanted to be or do. I'm, I'm guessing there wasn't a day when you came out, but. Uh, an evolution of people's understanding of who you were and, and a gradual sharing with different selected sets of people about who you were. That's right. It's very well put, actually. Uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a growing thing, and I have never been comfortable with the idea of saying, this is me, I am here, I, I am out, or whatever, because I'm private. Mm-hmm. 
and because I still haven't gotten over the, the thing of it, it's, it's bad for your career. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, friends of mine like Ian McKellen did it and uh, came out and has, has done splendidly both artistically and professionally since. So, you know, the, 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 the difference in my time, my life, and I'm not putting this well at all, is that uh, here and now, in, in this day and age, things are astonishingly different. But there still is that little, as I say in the play, there's a stigma in my mind, mm -hmm. not necessarily in other people's mind, but there's a stigma in my mind that I, I've had to get over mm. uh, until now, you know, because I'm an old man. Um, I, you know, as we go along, I want to talk some more about that. I want to talk to Erwin Krieger about this, about sort of the stigma, the, the nature of the stigma in the outside world may change at a different pace from how it changes in your in one's own inside world. But before we get there, um, Mr. Mayor, um, I, I think I knew you as a mayor before I knew anything else about you, but um, any of the details of your life. But, um, you know, Brian Murray just talked about the fact that the theater, you know, if there's a safe and friendly place to be gay, the theater probably would be somewhere near the top of that list. Um, politics, maybe not so much. The Latino community sometimes not so much. So I, I don't even really know when you came out or it, once again, it may have been the kind of gradual thing we talked about before. Maybe you could just, and I don't think I've ever heard you really talk in any kind of extended way about sort of how you navigated that question. I was extremely privileged. Um, my mother uh, was a very supportive woman and held herself out as a person who supported uh, young, especially young gay men uh, in our hometown back in Puerto Rico. Uh, she was actually the person who at 14 uh, basically outed me and uh, knew that based on my conduct, something was terribly wrong. I had left several girlfriends. I was being very rude and obnoxious to my male friends. And she was the one that actually confronted me. Uh, my stepfather, uh, while very abusive in many ways, was uh, extremely friendly towards uh, gay people in the neighborhood. And um, actually once I remember he owned a club, I actually remember him punching someone across the bar because they did not refrain themselves to being uh, very hostile and, and derogatory towards a gay man that was at the bar. So I, I was privileged in that respect. Um, but then, of course, in the world of politics, I was always very concerned that it would be something that, even though I was pretty much out, I, I was private, I was a very private person, but never, uh, you know, never uh, uh, kept it from anyone that, that I was uh, gay. Uh, initially, you have a smaller group of friends, and that circle starts to ex expand as you mature. Um, running for mayor as, as someone who was openly gay was very liberating because it, uh, it uh, frees you from, from having to conceal anything. Although I've learned that um, people who don't like you for your sexuality will always translate the fight and their dislike of you into some other sort of pseudo fight in order to wage their homophobic war. I mean, I sometimes wonder also whether the reverse is true too. It's people who don't like you because they don't like you we make it about your sexuality. Uh, yes, but I found that people who don't like you and have political issues to contend with you will, will do their best to conceal and will pretend to like you and uh, pretend that the fight is about something that it truly isn't. So I'm trying to I, actually I should have sketched down the timeline here um, before the show, but so I'm trying to remember a little bit of the timeline. But you know, in some ways, your ascension was a little bit different. You were on the city council, um, and, and and I guess you know sort of out to anybody who really particularly cared about it one way or another. But you were also 
you know, th- that job isn't a job that makes you terribly famous outside the city of Hartford. Uh, then uh, you became mayor, not through election initially, but because uh, Eddie Perez had to depart. Um, and, and so I'm just, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a way, I wonder if things would have, been this, would have been the same if the first time you wanted to be mayor, you had to run for it as a gay man. I mean, Hartford people could get used to their gay mayor at a time when he was essentially appointed for them. Uh, I, yeah, one could ask that question, except that at the same time, for the past 30 or so years, I was a very active member of the community, helping in many different causes, mm-hmm. one of which was uh, the fight for equality and justice for the LGTB community. So the community knew me as a helper. They knew me as someone who was active, who had given to the community. So, um, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Well, let me make the point this way. Like, what year did you become mayor? What did you, uh, first June 25th, 2010 at 5.01 p.m. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so... That was a little you know, way down the road from this. In 2004, uh, the governor of New Jersey uh, was revealed, uh, not of his own choosing, to be uh, a gay man. I think most of us remember that press conference, but let's hear it right now. At a point in every person's life, one has to look deeply into the mirror of one's soul and decide one's unique truth in the world. Not as we may want to see it, or hope to see it, but as it is. And so my truth is that I am a gay American, and I am blessed to live in the greatest nation with the tradition of civil liberties, the greatest tradition of civil liberties in the world, and a country which provides so much to its people. Um, obviously, that had profound consequences for him. Um, some of it is because he he, he wasn't open, uh, I think, and and some of it because was the historical moment of two thousand and four was a little bit different from the historical moment uh, of twenty fourteen. I don't. Do you remember that day? Do you remember the day I, that happened? I, I do. Yeah. I, I do. And um, and I wasn't in politics yet. I mean, not at least as a candidate. And I felt what a horrible way to have to sort of like just be dragged out, and in a very instantaneous way, sort of like come to grips with this at least publicly. Uh, it's, it, it would have been greater for a person to sort of uh, start, uh, begin from a point of somewhat celebration that as one accomplishes, that one is accomplished because they have revealed themselves fully and has sort of been out in the naked before everyone to see and, and not to have to go through that um, uh, sort of being dragged out or being forced out and then, uh, you know, having to see that reflection in the mirror that, that he speaks about that has always been the same person. It's always been the same person in front of that mirror. And, uh, you know, at some point you have to see you, you've been seeing it for a much longer time. And it's unfortunate. But then I understand that societies, uh, uh, even when laws are repealed, the culture and, and more mores and, you know, so it's a, sort of keep many people trapped. I mean, you know, I'm going to make a statement here, uh, which I expect people to disagree with, uh, but in, in different ways. And I'll, I'll start with you, Erwin Ir- Krieger. Um, but I want to hear from really kind of everybody in the room about this. Uh, I'll make the statement, all right, it's 2014. There is no gay person, uh, gay or lesbian person anywhere uh, who should feel as though he or she needs to be in the closet. There's no gay or lesbian person who couldn't benefit from coming out, from being more honest, from being more open, from uh, being more direct. There is no gay or lesbian person for whom the benefit uh, of being open uh, about his or her sexuality would not far exceed the harm that went with it. Um, So comment on that. 
Well, for the most part, I actually agree with what you just said. I think the exception is people for whom it's a safety concern. I think specifically when we think about teenagers who are reliant on their parents for their housing and shelter and food and survival, that we cannot um, just blithely say they should come out. If, if they're in a, in a home environment that they have good reason to think would be hostile or rejecting, uh, it's not safe for them. I think once people, um, it, let's say in the Northeast, are financially independent, uh, then I would agree with what you're saying. I, I've worked with many people who've had uh, total rejection from their families after they came out, but even so, they were glad they had gotten to that point and, th and that they were past that. Because when we're uh, staying closeted for fear of, of family rejection, we're basically rehearsing to ourselves every day, this is what they think of me, and, and, and the person is diminished by that and is, is experiencing the rejection internally all the time. So I, I do feel after having worked for many, many years with uh, many people who are in the process of coming out or telling me about their past coming outs that I can very confidently say to people that people are better off after they come out, again, with that one exception of people who are in danger. And I think there are other parts of the country where the group of who's in danger may be larger than just 16-year-olds uh, you know, living with their parents. Robin McGillen, I want to sort of run that same statement by, by you. And, and let me just say that a little bit later on, maybe we'll talk about the B and T in LGBT. But for, for now, let's talk, just talk about L and G. How okay. would you react to that statement? I would say for some people that's true, and for a lot of people that's not true. So for example, you can still be fired in 30 states because you're gay. So I would say in those 30 states, they might be personally better off if they came out possibly, but they might be financially much um, worse off. Also, right here in Connecticut, we have about 70 teenagers in our mentoring program, all of whom are under the auspices of the Department of Children and Families, mostly because their families threw them out when they came out. Mm -hmm. um, so um, when we work with young people, we have them do uh, a needs benefit, you know, benefit, risk benefit analysis to say what are the potential benefits of coming out as a person who's not solely in control of your own life and experience, and what are the risks of coming out if the people that you're, who are caring for you have a, a response that is not what you're hoping for. And so I think that a lot of times it's not safe for kids to be out, and that a lot of the kids that are in the system, if they can hide, they do. Mm -hmm. um, because it's just, you know, I'll give you one. Can I tell one quick story? Go ahead, okay. Yeah. okay, so there's a kid that we worked with for a long time. Um, he was out everywhere, except his social worker didn't want to talk about him being gay. Um, and so he wasn't out to his social worker. And he wanted to, this kid is he's an amazing kid. I think he's going to be president someday. But he wanted to live with a particular foster mom. And the reason he wanted to live there was because it was right across the street from his school and right down the street from the DCF office. And he was very involved in both things. So he went to meet with the woman um, and said, you know, I'd like to live here. I'd like you to be my foster mom. And she said, well, I can't have gay people in my home. And he said, okay, um, and he left, and he thought about it for a while, and then he called her back, and he said, you know, I really want to live there. And she said, well, I, I can't have gay people in my home. And, and he said, well, I'm saved. And she thought, oh, okay, because in her mind, being saved was very different <laughs> from being gay and uh, as, a, as a gay Christian. And so he lived there, you know, for the last two years that he was in school, very successfully but not telling her anything about that um, that part of his life. So, although you know, it's interesting, Brian Murray, because 
there is right now in Boston a debate going on that sounds exceptionally silly unless you're in the middle of it uh, about the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Yeah. Uh, and they, they wa- there are some who want to open up the St. Patrick's Day par- Parade to, to gay marchers who want to march as gay marchers. And I was listening to a public radio report on this, and at one point they quoted a Catholic priest who said that who played some kind of very important central role in this parade, and he said that you know he would be withdrawing his forces if gay people marched uh, and if they self-identified as gay. And he said, you know, it's one thing for them to come to us for help with their problems, and we'll give them help with their problems. Uh, and and if they want to march in this parade to celebrate their Irishness, that's fine, but not to to exhibit and and celebrate their sin. I. I think I'm paraphrasing him fairly accurately. I, I find that an astonishing story. Yeah. I really do. Uh, I mean, what would Pope Francis say about it? Just for openness, uh, you know, he was he to judge. I mean, there is there's there's a shocking value uh, to what you've just told me. I mean, I'm I'm appalled, but at the same time, uh, the reason behind it. I mean, celebrating your gayness. There's a certain value to that. I mean, you're not particularly in the parade just to celebrate being, celebrate being gay. You're there for another reason, because you are Irish. And uh, I think that's an important factor. But, you know, Colin, the, the strange thing about being a, a gay actor is that you spend your life pretending to be someone else. That's your job. Right. And when you uh, are pretending not to be gay, that's another job. It's just something that you have to be more successful at because you might lose your present job if you don't. It's, um, it's, a, it's a strange mystery to me that, that, uh, that the mayor has talked about with such clarity, and you have, sir, uh, that, that it makes me feel rather stupid. But uh, I, I still belong to a, a time where... To come out and, and announce to the world that you were gay is a sort of infradig thing to do. It's, it's below one's... It, it's unnecessarily undignified mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah, Erwin, go ahead. You know, I, I think um, those of us who are maybe out more comfortably still feel some, some of that in terms of how, how are we going to kiss our partner in public or are we going to walk down the streets yeah. holding hands? You know, maybe in Provincetown, maybe in New Haven, maybe not. So I think we all grew up with, um, again, maybe with the exception of the kids who are 12 today, but, but those of us who are, are adults now grew up with understanding that this is a stigmatized behavior. When I, before I came out, it was still a sickness and it was shameful yeah, and yeah, sinful yeah. and so on. And, and so we have that inside ourselves too and we have some self-consciousness about it. So even though I'm very public and everybody who knows me knows I'm gay and you know, it's not a big deal to me, um, it's not that I'm free of some of what you're saying. No. That, that feeling inside that um, maybe I shouldn't show this so much or somebody's going to be critical or there's something wrong with me or, or some guy is going to make fun of me. Right. Just like when I was, you know, 13 years old. And, you know, I think we have an interesting um, example of this here in the United States right now um, with uh, a football player, not your kind of football, um, a football player, Michael Sam, who, who he's a college football player. He's a star. He is uh, eligible and possibly coveted in the NFL draft. And he is the first person in that position to come out as a gay man. And one of the responses that I've encountered a lot 
from naysayers is, well, why does he need to do that? Why does he have to call any attention to it whatsoever? Why does he just, you know, I mean, why, why do we have to know about this and care about this? And I think part of the answer is sometimes you come out because if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And these people are so fly-specked as they're going through that process. There's just no question that Michael Sam would have been outed somewhere in between now and the day of the football draft, and so he wanted to take, char- take charge of that. I think that's a, one reason that people do come out sometimes. You know, we're going to go to a break here in just a second, but Mr. Mayor, I want to come back to one thing, which is that, you know, uh, in the words of Finley Peter Dunn, uh, a great uh, Irish journalist, um, politics ain't beanbag. Um, and so you're, you have to win elections, and you've got opponents, and sometimes the opponents act more like enemies than just like opponents. I mean, do have people tried to make this an issue, take you out? You're you're trying. You need to get elected with, partly with a Hispanic vote, a Latino vote. Sometimes that's you know supposedly anyway a tougher community to be gay in. I mean, how how much of a political problem has this ever been for you? There was a grocery store owner who uh, owns a grocery store in Park Street and had one of my political opponents come in who attempted to uh, whisper in his ear, mm-hmm. uh, "You got to be careful with that guy that's running my opponent." He's, you know, he's he's from the other side. He's, and 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 the guy kept on going to which side, you know, and <laughs> and finally revealed to him. And the grocery store owner, to make it sh- story a long story short, ended up throwing him out of his grocery store mm-hmm. and says, "I know the man, mm-hmm. I know the man," and um, I, I think that in a lot of circles now that's it's it's backfiring. But um, you know, I, I understand still people that go after uh, the LGBT community. It's it comes from a point of ignorance. It comes from a from a from an empty space, and um, I think that the place at which we have been most effective is to wage this campaign of education to sort of um, educate the public and and develop a lot of allies. Allies are are extremely important. Allies are extremely important. Um, we're going to take a quick break here. We've got some very interesting tweets and emails coming in here. We'd also welcome your phone calls at eight six zero two seven five seven two six six eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We'll be back. Think you know it too That shirt's too gay for straight guys It is not too gay for you So come out of the closet Uh, welcome back. We're talking. We're having a conversation. I don't even exactly know how to define what this conversation is about, but it's certainly uh, certainly about uh, LGBT life and the degree to which uh, it's lived in the open and the degree to which it's not. Uh, with us today is the great actor Brian Murray. He's currently starring. You just heard about it in a song at Twilight at Hartford Stage, playing until uh, March 16th. Uh, I will endorse it. Uh, mayor Segarra will endorse it. Uh, we've both seen it. And Mayor Segarra, uh, Mayor Pedro Segarra, the mayor of Hartford, is here with us. Erwin Krieger is with us, a clinical social worker in New Haven who works extensively with the LGBT community. Robin McAllen is the executive director of True Colors, a nonprofit organization in Hartford that provides support, uh, education, and advocacy to the LGBT community. You know, we got a tweet here, and it's it's a pretty good uh, place to start a conversation, I think. And, and I'm going to start by uh, running it by... You, Robin, but first of all, I have to pull it into view. Here we go. Uh, so this is actually an email, an anonymous email. It says, I'm a middle school teacher in Bridgeport, and I wonder what your guests would have to say about coming out in the classroom, particularly in areas where the population is traditionally less exposed to acceptance of LGBT people. Uh, I am not out to my kids, mostly for fear uh, of their and their parents' reaction, although my whole school, my school, I assume she means the school administration and, and fellow teachers, uh, are very accepting. So what about that? Um, 
I think that it's really complicated. First, I, I do want to challenge a little bit the idea that one community is more or less homophobic than another community. Mm-hmm. I think homophobia looks different in different in different communities. Um, but even though we have laws in Connecticut that says that you can't be fired for being gay, middle school is a really scary time for a lot of people. In fact, we've been working, you know, we've been working with high schools and there's like 168 gay straight alliances in public high schools in Connecticut. There's probably only 3 gay straight alliances in middle school. That people are really afraid that somehow that this conversation is going to be about sex rather than relationships. You know, when we were talking before about coming out, that that people equate coming out with talking about your sex life as opposed to coming out means talking about your life and, and your relationships um, and who's important to you and what you did this weekend and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I understand her fear or his fear about coming out in the classroom because people still have a lot of belief systems that says, you know, that, that a gay teacher is going to recruit gay kids, that there's going to be some sort of influencing. And even though that's all myth, there's still a lot of concerns about that. And, in fact, uh, we have a conference coming up in a couple of weeks, and one of the the workshops at the conference is being out in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean, and what is that like, and and what are the pros and cons of that? And I think each individual has to make a decision. And I'll say as the last piece of this is that the decision – to be out has consequences and ramifications. The decision to not be out also has consequences and ramifications, especially with LGBT youth um, that in the in your in your classroom and in your school that there's there's that ongoing message that who you are is not okay and it's not safe to be you in this environment. Yeah, Erwin Ir- Krieger, you want to react to that? I mean, we're back to that whole question: the truth mm-hmm. will set you free unless it doesn't. Well, I think it's um, it's common for teachers to be out to their peers and not to their students. And then there are many uh, brave and wonderful teachers in Connecticut who are out at the elementary, middle, and high school um, level and are doing fine. And I think, as Robin's saying, are providing a really good role model in their school for uh, diversity in life and successful gay and lesbian people. Uh, it's important for kids to see that. But I I really do understand the fear that teachers have. I think especially at the middle school, it does bring us back to when we were teenagers and and worrying about having to deal with rude kids who are going to make fun of your sexuality and sort of bring all that past back. I, I think that for a teacher having this discussion with their colleagues and administration at the school and really thinking about it organizationally could really be helpful, making sure they have support from their peers. You know, I, th- I think um, that way coming out is much safer. And as with, uh, you know, all the stum- coming out stories I've ever heard always end up with the person is glad they came out. And I think that uh, people in, in Connecticut have their their jobs protected. They can't be protected fully from some kind of comments and harassment. But, but um, in my experience with working with lots of people, the end result is always more positive than negative, but each person certainly has to make their own decision. You know, and so much of this is generational in nature. We've got some calls coming in here, and I want to take those calls, but I want to sort of finish out this thought. You know, um, Brian Murray, uh, a few minutes ago, uh, the, uh, the mayor was saying, uh, talking about his childhood in Puerto Rico, and I, I think yeah, he used the phrase that at a certain point his mother realized that something was wrong. And, of course, that's not a word that we would want to be using anymore, and certainly everything that, that uh, Owen Krieger and uh, Robin McHalen uh, dedicate their lives to is 
sort of getting rid of that word wrong from that equation. Uh, but you know, we all grow up at different paces. And just to come back to your original point about how the world feels inside you, even as the world outside you changes, um, do you do you still feel? Is there any part, any percentage of your soul in which the word wrong still reverberates a little bit? Not wrong, no. Dangerous, yes. It's yeah. still it's still there. I, I must say this is a, an extraordinary occasion for me because this is this time, this moment, is the first time I have ever publicly come out. Mm, fantastic. Which is a kind of um, astonishing to me because. I never thought I would. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, everyone is sort of new, sort of, but I never would. I never would tell anybody that it was uh, that was that was the fact. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just uh, got on with my life, and my life has always been involved with the theatre, and the theatre has always told me what to do and when, where to be, and what to be mm -hmm. at various times in my life. And this was obviously uh, an important time for me too. So do you think you're doing that because of the play that you're in right now? P possibly. Possibly. Yeah. I, I, I seem to have gone that way in all my life. Every time I do a play, I'm, I, it informs me. Mm. You know, it's an interesting thing, too, about the theater. Uh, and I'm looking at Mayor Segarra because he goes to a lot of theater. Uh, is the first mayor of Hartford who I frequently look up and see a few rows over at uh, any play I might be at. But, you know, even watching, I, I wish Mark were here. I wish Mark Lamos were here. Yeah. Uh, he's directing an opera in Norway or something like that right now. Because, you know, he's, it's, a, it's an interesting evolution. When Mark came to Hartford, which was roughly 1980, I think, um, he really wasn't out. I mean, he was a gay man. He had a gay life. I was a newspaper reporter who wrote about the arts. But it was a – and I, I probably – if I ever asked myself the question, I probably would have thought, well, I don't know. He's, he's probably gay or something. But he certainly wasn't living any kind of gay life you know, that, that he would call attention to. And I think it pretty much – my recollection is – and I, Mark's, Mark might disagree with me – that it pretty much sat that way for most of the time that he was here. Um, you know, that if anybody really wanted to find out, if anybody was really curious about that, you know, I mean, they could find out. He wasn't living a life of rigid concealment. He wasn't certainly like Hugo in, in, in uh, A Song at Twilight and in this state of, of weird denial. Nothing like that. But also as artistic director of the Hartford Stage, which is this community fixture in which you kind of play a role of interface with the community, he wasn't making too big a deal out of, out of it. And I think when Michael Wilson came in, his successor, it was a completely different thing from day one, Michael and his partner were fixtures in the Hartford community. And, and I think that speaks not to differences in the two men so much as into, I mean, that was from 80 to maybe 88 or 89. And that feels like, at least around here, a time of vast change. But I don't know for what, for, for what reason. You know, I, I, first of all, I, 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 I encourage people to come see this play, uh, uh, Song of Twilight, the acting Brian and, and your and your crew are just so amazing, and it's just such a powerful story. And, and our stage, uh, both of our stages, uh, including even the junior stages, uh, are doing such a wonderful job at putting Hartford on the national and the international map. That I'm just so proud of them. Um, I, you know, I, it's gotten to be a very big community, and I no longer think of those within the group that are straight and those. Uh, that are gay and heterosexual, bisexual, it's it's just becoming one big family. And I think that what's important uh, uh, within the group is 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 the respect. And we're starting to respect people for their artistic, uh, their talent, uh, their accomplishments, their 
ability to contribute to our community and and everything is falling into place but but it has been i agree it has been a uh, uh an ongoing uh, morphology so to speak of of liberation and i think it's not yet complete and and now we're getting to the point where i'm trying to discover uh with my heterosexual friends that are male uh, how we express love for each other in a way that's not uh intrusive invasive or or uh, it's not sexual, obviously, but it's but it's just allowing ourselves to be more free with our appreciation of each other, without any uh, everything having to be viewed upon as 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 a sexual uh, sort of a, uh, encounter or, or 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 anything having to do with sex. I'm Bro bromance. 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 <laughs> yes. Bromance. I'm laughing because I can think of some of the people you have to work that out with, and it's. Uh, would be an uphill climb. Anyway, um, well, let's take a quick break here. When we come back, I really do want to, I, I promised this, that we would talk about the L and G part of this equation at the beginning and then maybe the B and especially the T part of this equation uh, towards the end. I think uh, there are barriers that have not yet fallen and there is a country that is still undiscovered and we'll talk about that when we come back. I'm gay, I'm really gay, I'm super duper gay, I'm gay. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Anna Novak. Greg Hill tweets for us a WNPR call-in and appeared on our intro. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. The part of Bill Curry was played by Roger Debris. For articles, show pages, and audio of the Faith Middleton Show staff, salute to Stephen Sondheim. Visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose Wonders, can good television be as satisfying as good literature? And now... Back to Colin. And we're going to use the HBO series True Detective uh, to explore that a little bit. We have other topics that we'll be talking about tomorrow on the news as well. You've got to join us. All right. Um, before we go to that conversation about the T and LGBT, let me, I haven't taken any phone calls yet, and we've got a bunch of them, and they all look interesting. Uh, Kaylee uh, in Old Greenwich, Neil in Stanford, hang in there. We'll try to get to you. Uh, here's Bruce in uh, Berlin. Hi, Bruce. You're on the air. Hello. What have um, you got to say? Yes. Uh, I... I didn't come out uh, as being gay until I was 70. Uh, I was in high school at a time when if you, you know, if it ever came out that you were gay, that you were, you were as good as dead. Uh, all through my life, I had to lie. Um, I uh, had to lie when I uh, went down to uh, New Haven this is during the draft and and um uh for your for your medical examination to, you know to be examined for the draft uh i had to lie and say that i wasn't gay because if i did, if i said i was gay you would have gotten the equivalent to a dishonorable discharge which would have chased you for the rest of your life uh, all through my job i had to say that i was not gay i had to I, I couldn't say that I was gay. It wasn't until finally one day I, I said to my uh, general practitioner, my doctor, that I was gay. And he said, oh, well, that's okay. Uh, you know, uh, I have a brother who's gay, and 
he's he has a, he has a friend and he's he's living a good life. Now, I have a cousin who's gay who was a school teacher all of his life, and he couldn't come out. He said I had he said I had to lie about it. He said and you realize that you're 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 living your whole life as a lie. Mm-hmm. Which takes its toll. It, I can assure you. Bruce it must take a terrible toll. And and I wonder as you look at somebody who is let's say 15 or 20 or 25 now do you do you look upon them with envy do you wish that you'd grown up in a world where the risks would have been uh, less terrible for you oh i certainly do yeah and, yeah brian did you want to say something oh, about yeah. that oh yeah i mean i so uh, agree with this gentleman it, 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 and i went to an all male boarding school in in south africa and you, you talk about being dead you know you, if there was the slightest hint of anything came out about you you were you were you were called a homosexualist mm-hmm. and beaten to hell i mean it was a very very dangerous time to be alive so i i know exactly what this and i'm as old as this gentleman and i i i, I hear you very hard, very well uh, thanks for that call bruce uh, you know i i do robin i do as promised want to talk a little bit about transgender mm-hmm. uh, people because it does feel as though the conversation that we're having now is a conversation about l- gay and lesbian people uh, is a conversation that transgendered people have yet to be able to have mm-hmm. that there's there, there there's some boundary that they haven't crossed that 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 others have maybe i don't know is there a way that you can sort of in a in brief sketch out that landscape for us um it's interesting i think in the last 5 years there's been a pretty substantial change when you think about it that there's there's um, still 30 states where you can be fired for being gay but there's there's 38 states where you can be fired for being transgender because of your gender identity and expression and most of those happened in the last five or so years the other thing is I think there's also real generational things because um, and as Irwin knows I, I think in in the last year I've done probably about 12 trainings in Connecticut um, with elementary school students who have made social transitions from one gender to another. So I'm talking about kindergartners and first and second graders. Um, Families are listening different to their children now. So I think one of the differences is that when a child comes out as gender nonconforming or transgender in this last few years, that very often families are listening differently than they did even 10 or 12 years ago. That people who came out as transgender, most often as adults or as late teenagers, often have very different experiences and still experience great levels of of harassment. There was just something last week in Waterbury where someone who was um, running against um, uh, Gary... It's New Haven, yeah. I was New gonna, Haven, right. I was going to bring that right, up. I was right. going to bring that up. And um, I, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not political, so <laughs> I don't remember where anybody's from. But anyway, um, he he put out a big thing that's saying that you know that Gary was going the wrong way because he was supporting people going in the bathroom to molest your girl children, um, which I have to say has never happened in, in 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 all recorded history that we've been able to find. There's never been an example of a transgender person molesting somebody in a bathroom. But there's been lots and lots of stories about cisgender gendered people molesting, harassing, and beating up trans folks in the bathroom. So, and um, you should explain that cisgendered is the term we use for non-transgendered people. That's right. 
You know, I have so many questions about this. Um, and and I, I feel, Erwin, that one of the things that we see here, I mean, there, there are people who, who simply, in, in, in all the ways that people ever were, virulently homophobic. There are people who are virulently transphobic. But I think there's also this whole other class of people. People hate things that are new. Things mm-hmm. People hate having to learn complicated things about other people and sometimes sort of capital O other people. And, and uh, you know, even for somebody my age, I'm going to turn 60 this year, learning about the trans universe, not that I don't know lots of trans people, I do, but learning about the trans universe and what's the right language to use and, and what are the different manifestations of this mm-hmm. and everything. There's one part of me that thinks, oh, no, I have to learn about another subculture. <laughs> this is really going to be really hard. And, and I, in some ways, I think that's some of the stubbornness you encounter in people sometimes is almost that. It's like, oh, really? You've got a whole bunch of special issues that I now have to take into account, and people don't want to do it. Well, my work is with families, yeah. and I would have to say I don't think that's the issue there. I think that Good. Um, that it is, it's interesting. Parents often have um, identified some of these kids as likely to be gay or lesbian because their child is growing up gender nonconforming, and when the child then comes out as transgender, the parents are taken aback because it is new, but not because mm-hmm. it's new language to learn, but just because they had um, felt good about the fact that they were anticipating that they were going to have a gay or lesbian child, and they're really cool about it and really supportive. And now they're faced with this possibility that um, feels very much, I think, like it did when I came out to my parents as gay in the 1970s, that the idea that this is a uh, young person who is now facing a bleak future of no friends, no job, social rejection, y- you know, uh, in terms of a gay man in the past, you know, drinking alone in a bar uh, to be your sort of uh, life's pastime. And, and I, I think um, parents are frightened by the idea that their child is going to be not accepted because they inside themselves have trouble accepting it. And they're also frightened that their child has to go through all kinds of potentially medical interventions to, to feel right about who they are. And that's a big unknown for, for parents as well. You know, Mayor Segarra, it was interesting when she brought up that campaign because I, I was following that campaign too. It was in New Haven. It was uh, for the seat vacated by, by now Mayor Tony Harp. Uh, Gary Kohler Winfield was running. And his opponent tried to make something out of this. And he ran these strange commercials that suggested not only what Robin said, but that, that just somehow or the, the opponent wanted men to be in the women's room, which was – whenever this comes up, and, and I've worked in offices where somebody was in the process of sexual reassignment, uh, and it is interesting how – freaked out people get about bathrooms. Mm-hmm. Like, and I also sort of wonder, what do they think goes on in bathrooms? Because all I ever do is pee or poop in them, and then I wash my hands and leave. I mean, there's like nothing that interesting that ever goes on in them. I was amazed that uh, somebody was running a, tried to run a campaign based on this. And uh, the trend lately is that they lose. They yeah. lose the elections. And, and that, in general, seems to be the trend lately. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much, Robin, comfort we take from the fact that you know, something like the Arizona law, just it, it seems right. like every one of those things now is going to fail, maybe even no matter where in the country they are. Every legal or political effort to use this that way is, is not going to work anymore. I think I think that that's largely true in a lot of in a lot of places in that that when people try um, 
it, they get sort of run out of town in that it's I, I was just thinking you know when I grew up there were just two boxes there was one really big straight box and one little bitty gay box and you were supposed to get in the straight box but if you got in the gay box you were at least supposed to stay there and now I'm, I, I ask always ask kids how they identify and so I have this like litany of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, questioning, two-spirit, same gender, loving, pansexual, flexual, not straight, not labeling, straight-ish, straight so far, straight with options, straight but stuff happens, gender-bending, gender-bending, bi-gendered, pan-gendered, agendered, asexual, and other, um, and that there's so many ways that, that kids are identifying. So sometimes adults have trouble with that, but the really the key is that, that kids are really talking about fluidity and recognizing that there isn't a box that you have to get into and stay in, and that they're sort of pushing um, the envelope of that. And I think the other thing, the last thing I'm going to say about this is that that the more gender nonconforming folks push the envelope around gender, the more room there is for everybody because gender is something, gender rules, gender norms, gender stereotypes are is something that sort of constrains every human being in one way or another, and they're sort of making room for all of us. Uh, an indication that we've all worked together too long. As you were doing that recitation, I was thinking, all right, I'm going to have somebody cut that up so I can make it my new ringtone. And, <laughs> and I'm, I, get a, I immediately get a little flash on the computer from Kion Wolf saying, my new ringtone. So, <laughs> You know, uh, Brian Murray, I'm going to let you have the last word, and unfortunately there's only about 60 seconds left for it. But okay. um, since, since this, this is kind of a momentous moment for you, yeah. do, do you think anybody else will care? Will this be mainly something that know. you will care about? I've been sitting here wondering about that. Uh, I, I don't know, and I, curiously enough, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a great freeing thing that I've done today, and I, I thank you very much for it, Colin. I kind of suspected it might happen, but I didn't expect me to be sitting here talking about it quite so much. I think this is a wonderful group of people, and I'm very proud to have met you all, and uh, thank you. Well, I, I wish you great happiness, and I, I thank you uh, for uh, taking the time with us and, and being so frank. And I, I wish you the greatest thing I can wish an actor these days, particularly from the British Isles, a part in Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a nose. Thanks to everybody who came in today. George Michael and Oscar Wilde, everyone involved in Glee, one-tenth of everyone you know and me, all of them were just like you. It got better for them, and it will for you, too. Gets better. I'm Kyone Wolf, and I'm a gender non-conforming dom sub lesbian who likes to sleep with men. But the thing I'm having trouble coming out about is, is, oh, this is so hard. I often watch The Bachelor. <sighs> I feel so much better.